Hi guys, happy Wednesday, and thanks for tuning into the podcast today. This is Unknown Friends, home of my weekly book reviews. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and this week you are listening to episode six of the podcast's second season. Now, quick announcement. Um, I will wait to share more details until the end of the episode, but I just have to tell you what's up very quickly. Unknown Friends is joining Patreon. Now, if you're not familiar with Patreon, it is basically a platform where content creators like me and audiences like you are able to get together in an online community. Fans get the opportunity to support their favorite creators, and creators get the opportunity to share bonus content and all kinds of cool stuff with their supporters. So it's a really neat setup. Uh, There are perks for everyone involved, and I am just super excited to be joining Patreon with this podcast. Anyway, more details at the end of the episode, so stay tuned if you want to get the full scoop. Now, one more thing before we dive into today's review. I have realized that I made not one, but two mistakes in my Mansfield Park episode, uh, my long one, part two. So this is kind of embarrassing, but you know, it happens. (laughs) I am very, very human. So I want to take the opportunity quickly to correct those mistakes. The first was a slip of the tongue or slip of the brain, perhaps. Um, I was explaining marriage between cousins in Jane Austen's time, and I said that we needed to put ourselves in an Edwardian mindset. <laughs> Did y'all catch me on that one? Uh, you history buffs know that that was not what I meant to say. I believe I was trying to make sure I avoided the error of calling Austin Victorian, since she lived and died well before the reign of Victoria, but my mind went the wrong direction. The Edwardian era is after Victoria's reign in the first half of the 20th century. Before her reign is the Georgian era, and that is where Austin belongs, also known as the Regency era, though in its most specific definition, Regency only refers to the 1810s, and that's exactly the time frame when Austin was writing. So we have to put ourselves in a Georgian or Regency mindset when reading Austin, definitely not an Edwardian one. That would be gravely anachronistic. Now, the second mistake was not a mental slip so much as a misunderstanding on my part of one detail uh, about the play Lover's Vows as portrayed in Mansfield Park. I said that Mariah Bertram's and Henry Crawford's characters in the play were in love. That, however, was an error on my part, a, a misreading of a couple of things Austen's narrator says in the novel. I looked more closely at the actual script of Lover's Vows, and the relationship between these two characters is, in fact, familial. So Henry Crawford's character is supposed to be the illegitimate son of Mariah Bertram's character. So the the impropriety in having Henry and Mariah portray these two characters is not that the characters are romantically involved, like I thought, but rather that... Well, first, it's it's considered improper in this context for a respectable young woman like Mariah to play the role of a girl who had a child out of wedlock. And second, it's considered improper because 
even though it's not romantic affection, the mother and son characters are affectionate. He fondly takes her hand, they embrace, uh, etc. And so for a young man and woman, like I said before, who are already attracted to each other, have been flirting for weeks, and have already, by their behavior, aroused jealousy in the woman's fiancé, this is still an unwise situation to put themselves in, uh, to portray characters who are emotionally and physically affectionate in any way. So that's what's going on there. Um, I feel better now that I've corrected myself. Again, apologies for those two mistakes. Um, and thank you for letting me clear up my, my incorrect assumption and my slip of the tongue. <laughs> Now, let us finally get on with today's book review. So you know already, our topic is The Violent Bear It Away, a novel by Flannery O'Connor, published in 1960. Flannery O'Connor, of course, was an American writer, a Southern Catholic writer, more specifically, which is kind of a category all its own. And uh, she lived in the 20th century from 1925 to 1964. She never married and died at the age of just 39 after uh, suffering from lupus for more than 12 years. Now, O'Connor is most well known for her short stories. She wrote over 30 in her lifetime, and she also wrote and published two novels. First, Wise Blood in 1952, when she was still in her 20s, and then second, The Violent Bear It Away in 1960, just four years before her death. Now, it is a bit interesting to discuss back-to-back -back this book and N.D. Wilson's notes from The Tilt-A-Whirl from last week, even though the two books are very different, uh, and these two writers are very different, both authors do share kind of a dark sense of humor and also an inclination for shocking people. Um, I described Wilson's writing style as a little brash, a little jarring at times, and I would definitely say O'Connor's is as well, uh, but like 20 times as much. And unsurprisingly, in Andy Wilson's personal bio on his website, which I mentioned last week and linked to on my Pinterest page, he says that he loves the dark flavor of Flannery O'Connor. So there is a definite influence there. And after reviewing notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl, this week we get to consider Flannery O'Connor's work not only as its own entity, but also as part of this conversation between authors. Uh, we can see a bit of source material in O'Connor's work from which uh, authors like N.D. Wilson draw certain ideas uh, and stylistic aspects as well. Anyway, let me give you a quick rundown of the story of The Violent Barrett Away, without spoilers. So there is this old man named Mason Tarwater, and he is a kind of hillbilly prophet. He has no wife or kids of his own, but years ago, he was able to briefly kidnap his nephew, Raber, to try to teach him some religion and baptize him. But pretty soon, Raber's parents found him and took him back home, and Raber has been sort of dealing with that influence and rebelling against his fanatically religious uncle all his life. Raber is now an adult, a school teacher, 
and he has a child of his own named Bishop, who the narrator implies has maybe uh, Down syndrome or or some kind of learning disability. Uh, O'Connor's stories very often include at least one character who is disabled physically or mentally, uh, and she often challenges some of our assumptions about that. Anyway, in more recent years, Mason Tarwater, the hillbilly prophet, has kidnapped one of his great-nephews, not Bishop, but Bishop's cousin, uh, full name Francis Marion Tarwater, who just goes by Tarwater throughout the novel. So Tarwater, when the book actually opens, is 14. His parents died when he was very young, and while his uncle Raber wanted to take him in and raise him, old Mason Tarwater did his kidnapping trick, took Tarwater himself, and threatened Raber with violence if he should try to reclaim the boy. Uh, in fact, he, he took a shot at Raber once and hit one of his ears, which impaired his hearing for life. So old Tarwater has raised young Tarwater and baptized him and has told him it's his calling to be a prophet once old Tarwater is gone. Now, most of everything I've said so far is actually explored in flashbacks throughout the novel, uh, because the book actually opens with old Tarwater having just died. Uh, in fact, let me let me read the opening sentence. Here goes. Francis Marion Tarwater's uncle had been dead for only half a day when the boy got too drunk to finish digging his grave, and a negro named Buford Munson, who had come to get a jug filled, had to finish it and drag the body from the breakfast table where it was still sitting and bury it in a decent and Christian way, with the sign of its savior at the head of the grave and enough dirt on top to keep the dogs from digging it up. Yeah. <clears throat> Allow me to introduce Flannery O'Connor. She doesn't mince words. So, 14-year-old Tarwater just lost his great-uncle, gets drunk, and fails to carry out old Tarwater's last wish, which is to be given a Christian burial. In fact, once Tarwater eventually sobers up, he is conflicted inside uh, and remains that way for the whole novel. He, he's deeply influenced by his great-uncle's teaching, but also feels the urge to rebel against it. Um, anyway, and so instead of burying the old man, he decides to burn down the house where they lived and completely leave his old home behind. So he ends up going to his uncle Raber's house, uh, meeting his cousin Bishop for the first time, and Raber is glad to see him. He thinks now he finally has the chance to raise the boy as he should be raised, i.e. not religiously but secularly in Raber's mind. Uh, so Raber has has totally renounced what he sees as the folly and fanaticism of old Mason Tarwater. Uh, and so he wants to convince young Tarwater to do the same. But the boy is highly independent. And so he resists Raber's influence about as much as he's struggling to resist everything the old man taught him. Uh, which means he just constantly has this inner fight going on between these two forces. Now, for a little while, it, it kind of looks like Raber is making progress. Tarwater doesn't really let on that this is happening. He does not want to be indebted to Raber, and he, and he really feels a contempt for him. But at the same time, he's got this voice in his head, or possibly from outside his head. O'Connor actually suggests in her letters that this voice may represent the devil himself. 
But the voice is encouraging Tarwater to cast aside his great uncle's influence, uh, and specifically cast aside the destiny old Tarwater laid on his great nephew. He told the boy he was destined to become a prophet, and more specifically to baptize Bishop, Raber's son. Old Tarwater wanted to baptize the child himself, but never managed to, so he assures young Tarwater that he must accomplish this task to save the child's soul. Anyway, so Tarwater is experiencing all this inner conflict, these opposite poles, and internally he, he tries to kind of bargain. Under the influence of this voice he keeps hearing, he demands an unequivocal sign from God that he is indeed meant to be a prophet before he says he will accept that as his destiny. The Old Testament prophets, you know, got burning bushes and and food from ravens and all this, so Tarwater says he needs something like that to convince him. But, of course, the thing is, you can't explain away just about any sign that might come your way, and so that complicates Tarwater's inner journey. He doesn't want to be met with a sign from God, so he will interpret away any possible signs as long as he can. Well, I won't give away the details of how O'Connor culminates the story, but I will just generally say uh, the signs become unavoidable. No matter how extreme, how violent young Tarwater's rebellion becomes against God and against his great uncle, the signs from God just become more and more intrusive into his life and soul. So, even if you've not yet read any O'Connor yourself, probably you can already tell from my description that her stories come across as pretty bizarre, they can be gruesome, even savage. Uh, Someone almost always dies in her stories, and often in a barbaric manner. Uh, She likes including characters with mental disabilities, or even with physical deformities, Or she often deals with just very rough, repulsive characters, like both old Tarwater and young Tarwater. Uh, She's got a unique, dark imagination and a grim sense of humor. So her stories are not for the faint of heart. Uh, Definitely not for kids. (laughs) And by the way, in The Violent Baird Away, there's... Not a lot of language, but O'Connor does use some offensive language, so beware of that if you choose to read it. Anyway, her stories are just intense and visceral and violent, like the title of this novel says. And what I described so far about the plot of the novel does not even touch the really unpleasant content of this book. Uh, She includes and implies some truly horrifying events. But the remarkable thing, I think, is that even the things that shock and disgust the reader in The Violent Bared Away, I think seem to inexorably move young Tarwater toward his divine destiny. So as I said last week at the end of the episode, I do not fully understand this book. Uh, I've not even come close to understanding Flannery O'Connor herself. But from reading the novel as carefully as I knew how, and from reading about the novel and its author, 
My main takeaway is that the book aims at communicating the relentlessness of God's mercy. So you've heard of the hound of heaven. God pursues human souls violently if necessary, O'Connor suggests. He overturns our plans, uh, puts blockades in the way of our escape routes from him, and he'll even unwind and straighten our attempted deviations from him into paths that lead us right to him. In some sense, he can redeem even the vilest things that we do and suffer by using those very things to actually pressure us in his direction. You know, often suffering can help tear down our self-conceit, our complacency, our self-sufficiency. And often suffering is in fact the only way to tear down these things, strip us of these uh, clogs on our soul. So divine love is often violent, O'Connor argues. In her novel, the final destiny young Tarwater feels laid on him is this. This is a quote. Go warn the children of God of the terrible speed of mercy. (laughs) That statement will make you scratch your head a little, won't it? The terrible speed of mercy. God as the hound of heaven. One of my favorite O'Connor quotes comes from one of her letters sent in 1958. Uh, You can find it in the collection of her letters called The Habit of Being. So she writes, all human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us and the change is painful. She certainly does not have a cushy understanding of grace. Rather, To her, God's grace is fiery, razor sharp, uh, purging us from the sin that separates us from him and therefore from all that is good. Now, briefly, let me specifically mention how very Catholic this book is. Uh, Another passage I ran across in O'Connor's letters confirmed this for me. So not only Christian, but particularly Catholic symbolism is overwhelmingly present in The Violent Barrett Away. The Eucharist especially pervades the story. Uh, Food and drink of various kinds and effects just fill the book from cover to cover. Even in the first line, we were told that a rebellious young Tarwater gets drunk. Well, interestingly, by the end of the novel, he is parched with thirst and ravenously hungry, and yet everything he tries to eat seems to make him sick. Um, There's just lots of symbolism going on with him trying so hard to refuse the bread of life and the living water, um, and him really not being able to refuse it, ultimately. And then, of course, baptism as well. His great uncle laid on him the destiny to baptize his cousin Bishop, and he's fighting that the whole time. So water is central to the novel's symbolism, as is fire. Raber takes Tarwater on a fishing trip to a little lake, and that is really the place where Tarwater must decide whether he'll perform the baptism of his cousin or not. And then at the very end, fire appears most prominently. O'Connor hearkens to the burning bush of the Old Testament, and possibly to purgatory as well, 
and I think we are supposed to understand fire as a cleansing force, like water is as well. So let me just read you this short excerpt from one of O'Connor's letters that speaks directly to this point, the Catholic uh, symbolism of the book. She calls her novel a very minor hymn to the Eucharist. And she explains, there are two main symbols in the book, water and the bread that Christ is. The whole action of the novel is Tarwater's selfish will against all that the little lake, the baptismal font, and the bread stand for. There you go. Easy. She just explained the whole action of the novel. I wish it were that easy. <laughs> now, lastly, I should try to speak to the title. Unfortunately, this is a particularly tricky one for me. So, of course, it, it comes from the Bible, from Matthew eleven twelve, which says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away. Now, there are numerous different ways Christians have interpreted this rather mysterious statement. Uh, what does it mean that the violent bear it away? I, I don't think any of us are quite certain. And similarly, I'm not quite certain what Flannery O'Connor understands this verse to mean. I definitely think she is saying in her novel that violence is not all on the side of evil, uh, yes, she would say Satan can be violent, wicked men can be violent, um, but I think she believes that God and his servants can be violent at times as well. Uh, so I assume she means those who will rescue the kingdom of heaven from those who attack it must be violent in some sense. I don't know. I, I, I don't claim to completely get it. I will say I can see the contrast she draws in the story between the violence, uh, the aggression, and passion of young Tarwater and his great-uncle, as opposed to the weakness of Raber, the secular, uh, anti-religious intellectual. There's a deadness or a, a numbness to his soul, as O'Connor describes him, a lack of feeling, a lack of love, a lack even of the ability to act decisively and successfully. Raber fails in every possible way in the novel. So, frankly, I'm, I'm still kind of vague on how exactly we're supposed to interpret the title, The Violent Bear It Away, but I guess there's sort of a rambling attempt to grapple with it, at least. Now, I hope I've been clear about this the whole time, but it is worth emphasizing in case... O'Connor does not write, like, how to live a good Christian life kind of stories. No. Most of her characters, even her protagonists, are terrible people. In my experience, she, she does not write any role model characters. Her writing is much more about symbolism or allegory and about challenging the way we think about life, about sin and righteousness, uh, and about God. So just to make sure we're on the same page here, <laughs> O'Connor is a profoundly Christian writer, deeply Christian, deeply Catholic, but her stories take a completely unconventional route to the gospel. So I read anything by her and I, I feel like I kind of 
know what she's getting at, but it's like I'm fumbling in the dark. I can feel it, I can get the sense of its shape, but the details I, I just can't totally fathom. I don't know if it's something where I just need more life experience or experience reading more of O'Connor's stories, or if the fact will just always be that I can't totally understand her because I'm not Catholic or because I didn't know her personally. Who knows? I still think she's a great writer. Uh, she adds something so different to the great conversation that I do think is incredibly valuable. And she makes me ponder long and hard as I read. And for that, I'm always grateful. So that's a wrap for our review today of Flannery O'Connor's novel, The Violent Bear It Away. Thank you so much for listening to Unknown Friends this week. And now I finally get to share a bit more about our plan for joining Patreon. So like I said, Patreon is an online community where audiences and content creators get to support one another. It is such a win-win for everyone involved. Uh, so here's how this is going to play out. One week from today, that means Wednesday, February 24th, our podcast's Patreon webpage will officially launch. And we'll share that link in the episode next week and all across our social media. And there on Patreon, you'll see that I am creating bonus content for everyone who wants to join the Unknown Friends community there as a subscriber. So there are various amounts you can pledge, even as little as $2 a month to support the podcast. And in return, you get stuff like behind the scenes content, uh, literary resources, bonus episodes, uh, or even a free copy of my top recommended book from each season. So I'm really excited to share all those things with you, and I would so love to hear your ideas as well. What kind of bonus content would you be interested in hearing from me? Uh, you come here for book reviews, I know, so would you enjoy movie reviews as well? Would you enjoy hearing me read aloud longer excerpts from the books I review, or do drama or poetry readings. I want to create what you want to hear, but I often don't know what that is unless I hear from you individually. So please feel free to message me on Instagram or Facebook. Those links are in the episode description, or you can email me at kittywham, that's K-I-T-T-Y-W-H-A-M, at gmail.com. I love hearing from you, so send me a message, send me your ideas for Unknown Friends bonus content, and I'd love to create it for you if I can. So stay tuned to my social media and to the podcast next week for more info about how to get involved on Patreon and get access to the extra content I want to share with you guys. And speaking of next week, I will just mention that our book review in episode 7 will feature the work of the probably least well-known Bronte sister, Anne Bronte. I will be discussing her debut novel, Agnes Grey, which I'm so looking forward to sharing. As always, I'm Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wham Productions, and you can learn more about me and my writing by visiting my website, kittywhamproductions.com, linked in the episode description. Thanks for listening.